Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you like what you're hearing right now? Then be sure to check out VOC Nation. Whether it's on VOCNation.com or your favorite podcast provider, VOC Nation offers the greatest in live and on-demand content, great interviews, and incredible insight from those who have lived the business. Seven days a week, VOCNation.com. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter at VOCNation. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today, repeated guest, great guy, love him to death, good friend of mine, wrestling historian. If it ain't true, if it ain't, uh, George doesn't say it, it ain't fact. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, George Shire. George, thanks for coming on today. Wow. It has been a few weeks uh, since you and I got together and, uh, Every time you do that introduction, uh, I honestly, I I look around. I want to see who it is we're introducing. Uh, <laughs> if it isn't true, you can, whatever you say, don't, don't tell that to my wife. <laughs> Boy, my wife will tell you I'm never right. <laughs> and she's right. <laughs> so, yeah, well, good. I'm glad we're back together again. Yeah, me too. Good to see you. Um, just a quick uh, thing before we start. I just want to say that during the broadcast, if for some reason I'm clearing my throat or I, uh, whatever, uh, for the last honest to God month, I've been dealing with, uh, as I went to the doctor last week, severe bronchitis. And uh, I'm taking meds. And, but boy, I'll tell you, whatever it is, this Minnesota winter crud, it just will not let me be alone. So. I apologize to the listeners if if I do that, and I'll be sipping water here and there. And then very quickly, Brian, um, it has been covered across the uh, Facebook pages, internet pages. We did lose uh, one of our old school, uh, very underrated wrestlers, but certainly leaving a fantastic mark on the pro ranks and the business, and that was Johnny Powers. And it has been covered elsewhere, so I'm just going to say, Thank you, Johnny, and uh, rest in peace. All right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Very underrated, <laughs> underappreciated uh, wrestler from the day. So, all right. Today, our subject, off the cuff here, I want to talk about the big three. The NWA. General Motors. The, Ford yeah, Motor General, and Chrysler Corporation, right? right? Well, the automaker big three, No. The wrestling oh, oh, big okay. three from back wrestling in the day. Big three. Okay, okay. NWA. No, I could NWA. talk about the I could talk about the car big three too. 
I, I know you could, yes. Yeah. No, I, and, I'm and, just giving you a hard time. I know. AWA, NWA, WWF. A lot of uh, things occurred in the 19, early 60s. And I just kind of want to talk to you a little bit, if I could, about it, George. How how that occurred, how they went off, and, and why, and kind of the result of that. So let's talk about, about why it happened, uh, when it occurred, and, and why it occurred, if, if you wouldn't mind talking about that. The AWA and WWF basically broke off a few years apart, but w- why did that, th- that occur? Well, as always, I think we need to back up just a little bit, maybe. Okay. Um, and, and I'm going to, as I do this, I'm going to clear something up that has been, I think, mistold in the his, history of the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, most of us are aware that it followed anything historical that I've done and others have done. The National Wrestling Alliance was created in 1948, uh, a conglomerate of promoters from around the Midwest got together uh, in a room, decided they were going to get together and for all practical purposes have one world champion. They were going to recognize the one world champion. And um, long story short on that, and I would add that Minneapolis territory, which I'm from, that was part of this group, Tony Stecker, who was the Minneapolis Wrestling Club promoter, along with Wally Carbo, who was his matchmaker at the time. They were part of this group of promoters that got together. And it was Sam Muchnick, obviously, uh, Pinky George. And, you know, the other two, three guys escaped me, but they were prominent in this this, uh, decision to recognize one world champion. So the whole thing came about where And I've said this before, people often say the NWA territory. The NWA was never a territory. For all practical purposes, it was a champion. This group of promoters got together, created this National Wrestling Alliance, where they would recognize one champion. And then all of these other individual territories in the wrestling business at the time, in 1948, early 50s, they would be able to get the champion on their respective cards, maybe once, maybe twice, sometimes three times a year. But they had to go through Sam Much. And Sam got a percentage of the champion's uh, purse. I think it was like 3% that he got of the champion's purse for the night in these various towns for booking him. But it really was, you know, XYZ promoter calls up Sam Muchnick. I'd like to have whoever the champion is, you know, on these dates if he's available. And then they'd build the storyline in their respective towns to have the champ come in. The first champion, National Wrestling Alliance champion, was Luthez. Obviously recognized because of his long tenor in the business, respected by everyone. He was a real deal. We've talked about that. A shooter. If yep. Lou couldn't beat you, no one could. Lou yep. was great. And if he didn't like what you're doing in the ring, you know, he'd snap a wrist or break an elbow. 
you know, you just cooperated with him, but he was well respected. Now, here's the fallacy I want to clear up. As the NWA went on and Luthez's um, uh, history comes, it was stated that he was a six-time National Wrestling Alliance world champion. Well, that isn't exactly true. Lou was the NWA champion the first time, but he really only held the NWA Alliance champion three times. Because before the alliance was formed, Lou had won three times the National Wrestling Association, which was just a title that he held. And so that association went away when it basically was merged with the alliance, so to speak, in 48. But they just somehow conveniently put the two together and made it, you know, sort of stretch the history a little bit. So there you go. And then, of course, the rest of the NWA title history is. Uh, uh, we've talked about it before. But, yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah. 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 So uh, during the 50s, things in pro wrestling worked very smoothly. Uh, most of the territories around the United States, they were able to get the NWA champion in for their one or two or three times a year. Sometimes they'd get them for a whole week and use them in each town that they promoted in and that sort of thing. But um, it was always going through much. The problem was, is that there were a lot of territories and a lot of times a certain promoter couldn't get the champion, whoever it was. It You know, it started with Lou and, and Whipper Watson, Billy Watson held the title and you know, we went on to Dick Hutton and Pat O'Connor. Uh, they they weren't able to always get the champ when they wanted them. And sometimes one promoter seemed to monopolize him a little bit more. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, as in anything, eventually there's a little crack in the foundation. And one of the things that happened really important was that throughout the 50s, uh, that guy named Vern Gagne, he wanted to be NWA champion. That that really, he wanted to be NWA champion. And he was extremely popular all around the country. This was in his traveling days, Brian. He yeah. would uh, he was all over the country. I mean, people don't realize this, that before his own company, he wrestled in Boston. He wrestled in New York. He wrestled in Texas. He wrestled in Florida, in Atlanta, out in California, uh, Pacific Northwest. You know, Vern, Oklahoma, you name it, Vern Travel. And Greg yeah. Ganya, his son, he's told me stories how they literally lived in a travel trailer when they were kids, when Greg was a young, young lad, that they would travel with Vern and Mary, his wife, and uh, travel around. And Vern was the real deal as well. The amateur champion represented the Olympics in 48. He was an alternate. And right. uh, But stressed, we all know he stressed that amateur wrestling background. And so it was always unnatural that Vern should be a contender to mm-hmm. Lou Thez, who had the – Lou had the NWA title uh, – a really long reign for most of the early fifties up until about 57. And he personally went to 
uh, Sam Muchnick and said, you know, let's take it off of me for a while. Uh, they wouldn't put it on Vern. And it was Lou. Lou didn't want to put Vern over. And here's the, here's the other rub. Vern didn't want to put Lou over if he didn't have to. And then their other claim was that Vern was too small to be the NWA champion. Now, he had held the, the only other title that the National Wrestling Alliance recognized. They never recognized tag team champions. And I'll talk right. about that in one second. But the other title they recognized was the World Junior Heavyweight title, which we all know, if you look at history, Danny Hodge practically owned for a long, long time. But yeah. Vern had it in the 50s. When he dropped it, he uh, he wanted to uh, go to the heavyweight division. And yeah. Muchnick and Lou and other powers that be just said, well, Vern's too small to represent the uh, NWA as its world champion. So that was a contention of uh, frustration, shall we say, for Vern. Yeah. And that's where a lot of that started with him and Lou. And as the 50s moved on, Minneapolis. Now, when I say Minneapolis, I'm talking the the city that's the wrestling club. Many, it was the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club, but wrestling was their main forte. So boxing, we'll just leave it out of it in the equation here. All right. And Tony Stecker, who was the promoter, he passed away in 1954. His son, Dennis Stecker, took it over the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, which I will point out during the 50s was, as I always call it, um, under the umbrella of the National Wrestling Alliance because Minneapolis used the NWA champion to come in, like all the other promoters did, come into mm -hmm. the city here and there and defend the title. So Dennis Stecker took over. Wally Carbo was his, his uh, right-hand man. And the problem became where Vern, being a Minnesota boy, had a lot of power. And in the Minneapolis region and surrounding cities, whenever Vern was on a card, it was huge on the marquee. He sold out. Vern wanted Lou to come in, drop the title to me. Vern wouldn't do it. Um, even put him over and just let him be champ, you know, and. Vern yeah. in his own way thought, well, you know, we'll have a, a break off promotion, whatever. Then it got to the point where uh, 1959, the uh, title from Lou had passed a little bit from first Dick Hutton in 1957. And Dick Hutton, you talk about forgotten wrestlers in wrestling yeah. history. This guy, Brian, was the real deal as well. Great yeah. amateur champion. In fact, he even held a victory over Vern in amateur matches, if that yeah. says anything for you. Well-respected. And Lou wanted him, Lou, Dick Hutton, to be his self-chosen successor. Yeah. Sam Muchnick went along with it. The NWA promoters went along with it. So in 57, we had Dick Hutton. The only problem with Dick was, for lack of better way to say it, he was not charismatic at all. I mean, yeah. he was a great technical worker in the ring, but most people will tell you that out, his, his in-ring persona and his, his output, his voice, his interviews, 
he, uh, you know, you could watch paint dry on the wall and it was more exciting. And, and so <laughs> what happened after a couple of years for in 57 to 59, he wasn't drawing. And the he, the promoters would have him on a gate and he'd, you know, ho-hum, Dick Hutt is in town. And that was really sad. But eventually the at the 1959 meetings, they got together, the promoters, yeah. who were the National Wrestling Alliance, so to speak. And it was voted that Pat O'Connor would beat him and take the title. Now, Pat O'Connor, great wrestler. You had to see Pat O'Connor. In the fifties and the very early sixties, to appreciate what a um, what a whirlwind he was in the ring. He was, you know, he was a, a high flyer before there were high flyers. Yeah. He had one of the most interesting and sensational drop kicks of any wrestler up to that time, and for many years thereafter. Yeah. Lou would get up kick you, get you right in the chin. And I mean, it looked real. And Lou would be prone with your, with your chin, yeah. He'd be straight out. And then he would drop, you know, as they would do after they make the contact. And, uh, but yeah, beautiful drop kick. Lou, and Pat drew really well. But again, a couple of years down the road, they want to go to a new champion. So we're going to leave the NWA at that point right there. Okay. Here's what happened in, in late 59. Uh, Vern Gagne again becoming incessantly frustrated that he can't get the champion. At this time, it's Pat O'Connor. He can't get him in the ring. Sam Wichnick just wouldn't wouldn't promote the match. And so the frustration led to, I'm going to do something about it. Now, an interesting thing happened in 1959, which even a year earlier, uh, which is something I don't know why it doesn't happen today. But it, what happened was the United States Justice Department was investigating that the investigating the National Wrestling Alliance for being a monopoly, meaning they owned the champion. No one else could promote a champion. No one else could have a champion. They had to go under Sam Muchnick's rules, so to speak, just use him as the goat at this point. Okay. And they were under investigation for being a monopoly. And what I said a minute ago, sidebar, it's amazing to me that the WWE has been a monopoly for, what, two, three decades now. And yeah, almost nobody 40 years. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. And nobody has... Uh, you know, claimed monopoly. But the bottom line was, is this investigation. So what Sam Muchnick and a few of the other promoters decided they were going to do to basically get the Justice Department off their back. It worked well with Dennis Stecker because he sold his claim to the Minneapolis Wrestling Club to Vern Gagne in September of 59. Uh... Along with Wally Carroll, Wally and Vern originally were 50-50 partners, and they okay. bought out Dennis Stecker in September of 59. So from September of 59 to into the 60s, up until, well, a good six months, up until about March, um, Minneapolis got the NWA champion, Pat O'Connor at the time, to come in, defend his title, 
Uh, I remember one match I went to with my daddy defended at Kinji Shibuya. Fun match. But anyway, um, Vern wanted to be champion, as I said earlier, and now he owned his own territory, the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, which, you know, promoted matches not only in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, but the surrounding cities. He was into uh, some of the North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, you know, promoting cards under the, uh, at that point, still the NWA banner. Well, they came up with that fictitious challenge. And this is, uh, you know, I always ask people, go to any site. Boy, I, it sounds like a broken record when I say this. Anybody that's heard me say this. Yeah. Pat O'Connor was not, keyword not, the first AWA champion. But here's what happens. In March, actually it was uh, May of 1960, the fictitious champion or championship challenge goes out from Wally Carbo to Sam Muchnick that we want to have a match with Pat O'Connor defending the NWA title to Vern Gagne within 90 days, or we will break away from the NWA and Vern Gagne will become champion by default. So that 90-day challenge, they played it up. And again, I have the programs with the stories in them following this 90 days from May to August of 60. And they they tell that, you know, O'Connor has refused to return phone calls. He has refused to come to the the territory. He is dodging Vern. And we get no answer from Sam Muchnick. That was the story, but none of that really happened. What had happened in May was that Sam Wichnick agreed that Vern Gagne could break away from the NWA and start his own territory. Now, the reason he did this was twofold. Number one, by that time in 1960, the NWA champion was basically being stretched by having to go all around the country, so many defenses not having a day off and, you know, in demand all over. And, of course, being accused of being a monopoly and having to fight that off in court. So he agreed. He said, we will let you break away, tell the storyline as you want it. So it came down that O'Connor dodged Vern. And August came along. We've got our 90 days. Pat O'Connor, Sam Muchnick refused to answer the challenge. And by default, the American Wrestling Alliance, which it was in the beginning, (laughs) is formed. And we are now recognizing the true uncrowned champion, Vern Gagne, as the American Wrestling Alliance champion. That was it. And the NWA was no longer talked about. It was almost like it didn't happen. And it was interesting when that break came was because a lot of the wrestlers that had been working for Minneapolis up to August of 60, Mm -hmm. they never, they didn't appear here anymore after Vern took over. Vern brought in a group of his own wrestlers. Uh, There were a couple of holdovers, but 
Burn brought, he relied on his friends to come in and help him build the territory, the yeah. new American Wrestling Alliance. And he brought in guys like Tiny Mills and Stan Kowalski and uh, Hardboiled Haggerty and Lenny Montana and Gene Kaniski and Wilbur Snyder and Joe Scarpello, Leo Namalini. These were all big names in wrestling, and they were friends of Vern. So they were in here working his cards and many others, too. Those are some of the prominent ones. So that's how yeah. that's how the AWA was formed right there. And, uh, you know, then we go down the history from there. And so I'm going to stop there and let you ask any questions or no, I want to move on to another break yeah, I mean, off or whatever you want to do. Well, it's let me show this. Let me show this. Yeah, go ahead, please. This is the pass off of the AWA belt being handed from Sam Muchnick to Wally Carbo, going to be presented to Vern Gagne. It's Vern's belt. It wasn't the NWA belt. And that was just <laughs> the fictitious tournament end. But Pat O'Connor was not the first champion. He was the NWA champ during that three-month period. But that that's kind of a cool picture. That is a cool picture. That is a really cool picture. And I want to talk to you. I, you know, the AWA <laughs> has such a deep history and lineage that isn't really talked about, unfortunately. Um, you know, Vern Gagne really changed the business uh, of wrestling, and I don't think he gets really enough credit for what he's done. Yes, he was hard-headed. Yes, he was stubborn. <laughs> but he also, it, from what I've known and, and, and watched and, and read, he was very – innovative as far as big cards uh you know getting out there getting on the television um things like that uh can you kind of expand on that a little bit of what the awa or what Vern did for the business during that era well, well and you know for some of those that have heard this a, a few times i mean it is it's not new news but yes Vern was uh, extremely an innovator in that he was one of the, uh, he wasn't the first, but he was among the first promoters that realized the real power of television when promoting pro wrestling in a territory. Mm -hmm. And Vern had become very famous along with guys like Killer Kowalski, Buddy Rogers, uh, Gorgeous George, Yukon Eric, Luthez. They used to appear on the Dumont Network, which was out of Chicago. And it was a national hookup. So ironically, a lot of people don't realize this, but in the very early 50s, pro wrestling really was kind of national long before Vince McMahon ever did his national expansion efforts starting in right. 1984. Because people could turn on the Dumont Network and see some of these guys that I mentioned, Vern mm -hmm. amongst them, and realized that, wow, when they're in town, I want to go see them. And that was the reason that all of them were so big wherever they went. Uh, Yukon Eric, I don't know if I mentioned him in that list, but he was on that as well. But the, the network became very important. And then when each individual wrestler or promoter went into their respective territories, they realized the importance of having a television wrestling program. Yeah. And in those days, the early days, uh, the local independent station in a 
town. You know, I know it sounds Neanderthal with the thousands of networks and TV opportunities that are out there today for people. But when I grew up in the 50s, most towns, if you had two, three, and if you had four stations, you were lucky. You know, we had three networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC. And then each city, in this case, the Twin Cities, my towns, they would have the Independent, which was just a local station that put on local programming. And uh, Vern, Tony Stecker before him, Dennis Stecker, and then Vern, of course, made sure that his wrestling program was on those independent stations. And that's how they sold their product. If you didn't have TV outlet in any town you went to, any territory, if you did not have a TV outlet to expose your wrestlers, to let them uh, brag and boast and, and be humble on their interviews and showcase their talents in matches on TV, if you didn't have TV, you didn't draw in the town because nobody yeah. knew about it. And you couldn't draw a crowd by simply having a poster of a wrestling card on the local lamppost in the downtown area or in the storefront window of a of a department of a furniture store or whatever it was, which they did these things. But that mm-hmm. wasn't going to the people had to see them and they got to go see them. That was the thing. See them on TV and want to go see them at the arena. So yeah. Vern had had all-star wrestling. And um, that alone is what launched the AWA. And yeah. throughout the 60s then, I mean, it continued from the 50s, but throughout the 60s, uh, the AWA, this has been said to nausea, but Vern Ganya's AWA was the promotion that any wrestler, of any merit wanted to work in the AWA. And when you talked earlier about the big three, mm-hmm. the AWA was one of those big three. Yep. And the majority of those wrestlers would, a lot of times if they had their option to do so, would choose the AWA over the other two or some of the other independents that were big Mm-hmm. Because it's been said, because of the travel schedule, which was a lot less, a lot, a, a lot less uh, uh, difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys didn't have to work six, seven nights a week. They could work maybe four or five. And when you break all that down, they could be home more often with their families when they were in the AWA, and they could have time off. And so. It became a very, and and Vern, I'm going to tell you this for fact, any wrestler that, and and we've lost all of them now. I mean, Mm. we mentioned Johnny Powers. He's like one of the very last AWA guys from the 60s, 70s. And uh, any one of them said that back in the day, if you worked for the AWA, Vern paid well. They got good paydays. And Vern was true to his word. If he told you he was going to pay you X dollars, you got paid X dollars. He didn't fudge on it. He didn't cheat you out of it. Um, we could flash forward to today's world and you hear stories about the the dying days of the AWA and how Vern had some issues with paydays. 
I, I don't like it that his last three years in the wrestling business have to be uh, soiled with, you know, really what he wasn't yeah. back in the day. So yeah. that answers, I hope that answers your question about the television it, it, aspect. It, it was vital. Yeah. No, it does. Um, he was very innovative for that era of getting on television, uh, you know, going around to different stations around the country and, and getting his, their program on their, on their networks. So he could, when they went into town, they knew who they were. And that's, and that was very, at that time, you know, cause you had to do a lot of traveling to, to do that. It was very innovative. It like now you push a button and you send your information to the, to the network. So you, I mean, you had to actually go in there and, talk to them and, and, and do all that, you know, do the salesmanship. I would point this out that, you know, television, uh, those independent stations back in the day, they welcomed a wrestling program on their station because it was, it was very cheap to produce. They had very little to do other than provide a, a little area in their studio where the promotion would put up a wrestling ring. And they'd have, you know, a couple rows of bleachers for fans to come in and be in the studio audience. And it was a very small area. I mean, uh, and, and the, the stations, they could then sell their advertising and make money. That's how they made their money in the early days where yeah. the, the wrestling, you know, Vern Gagne didn't pay in those days in the 60s to put All-Star Wrestling on the air. Channel 9 or Channel 11, which we had wrestling on here during those uh, that decade, they wanted it on because they could sell their advertising, and their advertisers liked it because wrestling was a popular program. Yeah, That kind of changed when we get into the 80s, when the promoters were then buy, paying to have their program on a station and paying the station big money to promote the show. And... Uh, you know, as it is today, and this is unrelated, but it adds a finish to maybe this particular part of the topic. In the latter days of the AWA from about 85, 86, 7, and so on, Vince McMahon Jr. was actually going into the respective cities that he was raiding wrestlers from and paying the TV stations to not run Vern's AWA, paying them to not run it and put his show on the air instead. Yeah. And again, that's when Vern started losing TV. You take his TV spot off, the fans don't know about the cards, losing talent. That's what happened to the AWA. And that's a funeral that I, I'm going to leave alone for right now. Yeah. So yeah. that that's it kind of did full circle. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes, it did. Um, now, I want to talk about the WWWF <laughs> at the time, which was a part of the NWA until they broke off. And I would like your uh, perspective on how that occurred, why that occurred, how it occurred, and kind of full circle like we just talked about the AWA. Well, part of it is, again, kind of the same story as Vern's break-off. Um, some of it was frustration in not being able to always get what they wanted from 
the NWA again, Sam, which let's just leave him to be the NWA at this point. Okay. Uh, but what really happened behind the scenes was, you know, the WWWF Worldwide Wrestling Federation that was uh, created in 1963, but it wasn't a new company, you know, like Vern's AWA, the, the territory had been around for two decades before that. So originally it was Capital Sports, which uh, was run by um, Toots Mott and Vince Sr. And they, uh, the the business was owned earlier than that by uh, uh, Vince's senior's dad. Uh, What, I'm forgetting his first name here for right now. Good heavens. See, even I have those brain losses. Uh, but his his grandfather, Vince Jr.'s yeah. grandfather. So anyway, what happened in 1961, well, I'm oh wait, I'm going to back up. Okay. In nine, we get, this this is important to tell this part of the story. In 1957, in Chicago, June of 57. Luthez, who was the NWA champion at the time, had a match against uh, Frenchman Edouard Carpentier. That match was a two out of three fall match, but in the second fall, Carpentier had won the first. In the second fall, Luthez, storyline or real, which I guess we could think about as I tell this story, he hurt his back, and he couldn't continue. So what happened was is there was a group of promoters that started recognizing Carpentier as the National Wrestling Alliance champion. But here's what is interesting. Sam Muchnick, Luthez, they went along with this. And Carpentier was... Uh, he was booked by a guy named Eddie Quinn from Montreal, promoter okay. up there. And that was kind of the breakoff point. And some of the other promotions, one of them being Omaha, Nebraska, and whatever surrounding cities, started recognizing Carpentier as the NWA champion. And not necessarily calling him NWA, but he was the world champion, and they used that match with Thez as their basis for the recognition. And, you know, in those days, Brian, we didn't have a clue. You know, whatever the promoter told us, we had no way of, I no way of even knowing about the Chicago debacle. So, yeah. um, but here's the interesting thing. For a few months, the NWA went along with this, actually recognizing, letting Carpentier being introduced as NWA champion in some cities, all the time where Lou was also the official and true NWA champion. Now, the interesting part about that is that when the title lineage is recorded, Carpentier gets no knowledge, no mention, no recognition from the NWA title. He didn't hold the title. They'll tell you he never held the title. But the truth is, he did. I mean, he was defending it. 
And so that was kind of part of the start of the break in the capital sports thing where they were uh, having issues recognizing, you know, which champion. And when Pat O'Connor lost the NWA title in 1961 to Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, this became a huge problem because even though the NWA board had voted to put it on Rogers, and again, O'Connor had been champion for a couple of years. It was kind of an NWA formula in those days for their champion to hold the belt for two years to three years, give or take. And then they would move it on to someone else. A lot of yeah. times the wrestler himself, the champion himself said, hey, I need a break. I, I'm worn out. I've been on the road for, you know, 365 days a year and my kids don't know me. And, you know, I, I want to drop the belt. So they'd go along with a new guy. Well, they picked Rogers. Rogers was extremely a good draw. Again, coming off a lot of that notoriety from the Dumont Network almost a decade earlier. Yeah. But here was the problem. Buddy Rogers was basically booked by Vince McMahon Sr. So Rogers' loyalties were to Vince Sr., even though he was the NWA champion. And what then happened was the NWA themselves were starting to have trouble getting their champion to defend the title in other towns. As senior, Vince senior, was monopolizing him on the East Coast, upper Northwest, or Northeast, I'm sorry. And so, again, the foundation started to crack. And by the time we get to, uh, there was a match in, I forget the exact date or time frame, but there was a match where Bruno San Martino, who was really an up and coming star, had uh, sort of had a disputed win, victory over Buddy Rogers. And Buddy Rogers then, the uh, East Coast was recognizing him as their world champion. Or I'm sorry, Luthez. Wait, George. Bruno had a match with Luthez, and it was disputed. And the WWF said, "We're not. We're going to recognize Bruno, or in this case, Buddy Rogers as their champion, who dropped it right away, like a month later, to Bruno in May of '63." And so yeah. from there on out, uh, the World Res- Worldwide Wrestling Federation was not part of the NWA. And Buddy Rogers was having allegedly some health issues, was reported that he had suffered a heart attack before the Bruno match. And Bruno just beat him in, what was it, 17 seconds or something to win the title. And Bruno was a great representative thereafter for their for their yeah. organization. And Buddy sort of faded from the so- sides uh, you know, being injured or whatever. So that's how that kind of happened. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Bruno held that title for what seven, eight years, something like that. It was it was just time. short. It was just short of it was seven, seven and a half years. He he won it May sixty three, lost it January of seventy one. So right. seven seven years and uh whatever. 
eight months. So in the, right. And in the seventies, then you still had, it was still the big three, you know, the AWA, WWF, NWA, a lot of territories, uh, but they're champions. Uh, I know, especially in the AWA, there was only two in the seventies, Vern and Nick. And usually back then, too, the title, even in the other two, WWF and uh, NWA, they held those championships for the most part. There was some transitional champions, but I'm saying they held the belt for two years, three years. Can you explain why that was? Because, you know, nowadays it's six months, eight months, well, maybe a year if you're lucky. But what's sometimes- the difference? What's the difference between a person like Vern, Bruno? Uh, those guys held it for years. What? What's? Why was that? Why did they held it, hold it for so long? Well, there's two different reasons for each of them, for Vern and Bruno. But let me back up a second to go back to the comment about um, we had shorter title reigns or transitional champions. Please remember that during the 50s, from the onset of the uh, NWA creation, Mm -hmm. the NWA title did not change often at all. I mentioned earlier that Lou held it for pretty close to six or seven years before he said, you know, I want a break. I want to have it off of me. Then he took it back uh, from Whipper Watson, and then he wanted to drop it again a couple of years later and uh, lost it to Hutton, as we talked about. Hutton had it for two years, but was lackluster, did not draw well, and he lost it to O'Connor. O'Connor held it for two years, from 59 to 61, which, again, as I said, the NWA formula, though fans never figured it out in those days, but their formula was the usual two to three years, maybe four years for a champion, but then they would be looking to put it on someone else. So it went from O'Connor to Rogers. When Sam Martino, let's touch on him first. Sure. When he won the title, uh, previous to Bruno on the East Coast, and which was then Capital Sports, their number one guy in the uh, Upper Northwest, or I always say West, it's Upper Northeast, Northeast Territory, uh, was Antonio or Antonino was his official name. Sometimes they called him Antonio. Antonino Rocca was their big guy. But he was at a point where he wasn't going to carry the title. So that's where Bruno came in. Bruno was young. He was strong. He was over. He had been over in in, uh, Montreal, and he was over in the Northwest. So they put it on him. The key thing to Bruno was that he was – for lack of a better term, an ethnic champion. He drew well as a babyface because of the huge Italian population in New York and the rest of the territory. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense. He drew well. You know, it's legendary that Bruno defended monthly in the Madison Square Garden. All of the reports say that he sold the garden out. I think credit also has to be due to some of his monster challengers that he was put in against but bruno was the bruno was the draw they came to see bruno win and 
drawing well, whether he did officially sell out every garden, you know, that's open for a dispute. You know, sometimes newspapers would report a, an attendance higher than what it was. But yeah. for all practical purposes, the garden was full for seven and a half years with Bruno on top. And again, the only reason that Bruno eventually dropped it in January 71 was he went to Vince Sr. And he said, I've got numerous little injuries, aches and pains, and I've been on the road for so long and I... I want to uh, I want to take a break. I, I want to take a break. And in through some discussions, Bruno actually recommended and asked who his successor would be. He wanted Ivan Koloff. He had a lot of respect for Ivan. They had met many times previous with Bruno's title on the line. Of course, Koloff didn't win, but he was the hated Russian. You yeah. know, and remember, still 50 years ago, Wrestling was able to use all of these prejudices and these uh, things with with uh, ethnic groups. You know, the Russians, the I mean, you could have bad uh, Germans and you name it. So Koloff was his choice. But the problem with the uh, with Vince Senior is he wanted a babyface champion. It was unheard of in their mindset for whatever reason that, well, we could have a baby face beat Bruno, but for some reason he didn't feel that was logical. So yeah. they decided they needed a baby face champion and they were going to go with Pedro Morales, who was next to Bruno, the next most popular wrestler in the territory or the country. Yeah. And he had that whole Puerto Rican which again is a huge part of the population, at least back then. I don't know how it weighs out today, you know, in our yeah. society, but back then it was it was a huge draw. So Bruno lost to Koloff, and uh, as we know, just a month later, whatever the exact time frame was, he dropped it to Pedro, which was um, the plan, and I remember at the time hearing about it on a side note when I heard that Bruno had lost to Koloff and then immediately lost to Pedro, I remember thinking, why wouldn't they have went with Koloff for say six months or a year and have him really build up this hated Russian thing. And, you know, he beat the mighty Bruno and we got to find a challenger for him and have him destroy some of the baby faces that never got title shots with yeah. a baby face champion. So, you know, that would have been the chance for Jay Strongbow and and uh, maybe even Pedro and all the other babies that were in the area at the time for six months or so to, to get a title shot. And then Pedro surprises everyone and he finally upset the title and took it back. <laughs> so that was my idea. But Vince Sr., he went with it. As it turns out, he made a good decision. Koloff dropped it to Pedro who held it for uh, a couple of years. Yeah. And he was a good draw, but he wasn't as good at the gate as Bruno was. And so it was decided they were going to take it off of him. And by this time, they were able to coax Bruno to come back. And he had wrestled sporadically, but to come back 
they had Pedro drop it again, one of these coffee break title changes. He dropped it to Stan Stasiak, who was a, a huge heel at the time, not only yeah. on the East Coast, but in other territories throughout his career. He dropped it to Stan and who immediately dropped it to Bruno Sanmartino. And Bruno got his his second reign. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So yeah. that's kind of how that went. And then yeah. Bruno had it for another, boy, what was it, a couple, three years almost. He ended up holding the, the title a total of about 11 years. So yeah. he had it for another or so years. And uh, then they went, surprisingly, um, they went with superstar Billy Graham to beat him, mm -hmm. who was really over at the time. Yeah. Very charismatic, very colorful, uh, egotistical, easy to hate. They went with Superstar. And for whatever it was worth, Vince Sr. let him have it for about a year. And then, ironically, this was interesting. They wanted, Vince wanted to then put it on another baby face. Yeah. But he didn't have in his territory the baby face that he felt he could go with. He placed a call to Sam Muchnick of the NWA. <laughs> and he asked Sam if Sam could help him recommend a new successor to Superstar. Yeah. Well, Sam recommended Bob Backlund. Now, that's kind of ironic because Bob Backlund at some point could have figured in to the NWA title. But yeah. Sam was in, uh, when that happened, what, Harley Race was champion, doing really well. You know, it yeah. wasn't going to happen. So uh, Bob Backlund went and became champ over there for five years. Drew well against every imaginable monster heel, again, at the Garden and uh, Bob was, Bob Backlund, during his babyface days, I don't think you'd call him Mr. Charisma. He was, right. you know, sort of, and they teased him and called him Howdy Doody. Yeah. And if you ever saw the Howdy Doody character back in the 50s, yeah, he kind of resembled <laughs> him. So it was, did, yeah. it was cute. But yeah. uh, that's how that all turned out. So that's how that lineage went. They went with champions for long periods of time except for their transitionals yeah. we know when we got to hulk hogan you know backland lost it to the iron sheet who immediately turned it around because yeah. it was going to go to hogan that's when the expansion was was going to happen yeah. that's when mcmahon jr now who had bought the company from daddy back in 82 so here we are in 84 going into 85 and jr has this vision you know, love him or hate him, the vision was real. And yeah. sadly to say, most of the other great promoters didn't see that train coming down the track. Vince yeah. did. He made it happen. And yeah. so he immediately gave it to Hogan, who Hogan held it for, I don't have their title history in front of me. but About four years. He held About it four years. for a couple, couple three years. Yeah. yeah. And and he was the he was the flagship, and then the rest is history with that. Right. Now you know today you mentioned sometimes they only hold it for six months or a year. Well, I think it's safe to say that after the Hulk Hogan era, um, Randy Savage was in there, and however their title history went. But before you know it, 
up to today, I mean, mm-hmm. they have had champions that have been one-day, two-day champions. They'd yes. win it at a pay-per-view and lose it on Monday Night Raw the next night. You know, yeah. and I mean, the title, his their title, everybody in that promotion of any merit has been the WWF champion, which to me just completely dilutes whatever the title is supposed to represent. And let me yeah. add a personal opinion, but I think if you think sure. about what I'm saying, you might agree. The idea of having the long champion like Bruno, the and we'll touch on Vern in a second, but Vern had his last, his second to last title reign. It lasted almost seven years. Yeah. Uh, or it was seven years. Yeah, uh, seven years. It was just a little over seven years. The idea was for them, and then Nick, we know, had it for almost five years before he dropped it back to Vern. But if you had a champion that you had a guy, a wrestler, that worked hard, I want to become the champion. That's my goal. Making wrestling appear real. That was the whole objective. That the ultimate for any wrestler was I got into the business because I'd like to be the world champion someday. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be tough. These guys have to go through this guy and that guy and the next guy. I got to beat this guy. And when you finally get to the title and you become champion, my logic, my rationale is that it made sense then for that guy who worked so hard for so many years to be able to hold that title for a while to show that he was the champion. Now, if he, and I'm going to go use Bruno and Koloff, for example, you have a longtime champion. Fans were silent when Bruno lost. Oh my God, how did this happen? Bruno, he got beat. You know, that they weren't prepared for it. And that was the beauty of it. That was the shock of it because he had come to the point where fans just believed that no matter who he was against, Bruno would find a way to beat him. That's what made a champion. And that was the power of Luthez when he was champion for so long. And so Koloff wins it. He turns right around and he loses it to Pedro. And again, I remember thinking to myself, well, now that means Bruno lost the title to two guys because Koloff beat him. And if Morales beat Koloff, that means Morales is better than Koloff, who was better than Bruno. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to me, they made Bruno look worse. That's just my rationale. And now he got beat by two guys. But when when Vern had it, what happened with Vern in the early 60s, he was champ for uh, when he, 1960, when he was declared first AWA world champion. Mm Mm-hmm. He held it for up until the next year in 61. He dropped it to Gene Kaniski for only a two-week period. Gene Kaniski gets credit, of course, for being having been the world AWA champion. But in those days, it was Vern putting the title on Kaniski because they were trying for a rematch. They had to have a reason to continue the feud in Vern's eyes. So I'll have him beat me, and then I got to get revenge. And the fans will support me because, you know, Kaniski cheated or he shouldn't have got it or Vern's better. You know, it was a good it was a good storyline. 
So yeah. Kaniski had the title. Then we moved into 62, and Vern dropped the title for eight months from January to August to Mr. M, masked wrestler Bill Miller. And Bill Miller was one of Vern's good friends, one of the guys that was helping him keep the AWA launched in the early years. And I think Vern did it as a favor, but it also drew well to have the masked man get that victory over Vern. And people, again, I'm going to go back to people don't realize how Vern Gagne's name on the marquee drew fans. Anytime Vern was on the card, whether he was champion or not, attendance did go up. Ever so much, you know, ever so lightly or a lot, it went up because Vern's name drew. So Miller held it. Then Vern dropped it a couple of years later. After 62, he drops it to Mad Dog Vashon in 1964. And he let he let the dog have it for three years, give or take. The dog had had a short interim loss to uh, Igor in Omaha. He had a short loss of the title for, it was like three months to the Crusher. Crusher held it, but dog got it back. So for the most part, those were, again, some of those, let's draw a rematch, keep the feud going. <laughs> you know, that's the way they promoted in those days. But yeah. in 1967, then, after basically a three-year run for the dog, Byrne took it back. And then, I don't know why, but to me, this one really never made sense. But in 1968, a year later, give or take, Fern took it back in February of 67, and he lost it in August of 68. So like a year and a half later, give or take a month or two. Yeah. He lost it for two weeks to Dr. X, which was Dick Byer, mm -hmm. the destroyer everywhere else. But he put the title on the masked man for two weeks. That, again, was just a way to build a rematch X was so hot for a whole year previous in the AWA that it made sense for him to maybe get that push. And then after he loses it back to Vern, he's into other programs with some of the babies and, you know, his legacy yeah. goes on. Now, when Vern took it back in August of 68, it finally dawned on him. And he, he physically made this happen. He was watching the Bruno San Martino long title reign. This is a true story. By that time in 68, Bruno had been champion for five years, five and a half years, give or take, from May of 63 to August of 68. So he'd been champion for five and a half years. And Vern decided, I am the owner of this company. This is my title. I am the best wrestler. He believed that. And well, he should. He said he made it a goal that he was going to have a long reign like Bruno. And when Bruno lost his title in 71, with seven and a half years in uh, championship, Vern decided he was just going to try to see how long he could hold it. Now, he did have a hiccup. He was thinking of putting it on Nick Bockwinkle as early as later 1971. Okay. But... 
that got derailed when uh, Hercules Cortez was killed in July of 71. Nick was being groomed as kind of the top challenger to Fern. He was going to face Hercules. He had in a couple of other cities. He was going to face him. And then on the night of the match, or the morning of the match of the day, uh, Cortez was killed in a car accident. That night that he was killed, of the day he was killed, uh, Nick was supposed to wrestle him. And Vern stepped in in a non-title match last minute, said, I'll wrestle Nick, but I won't put my title on the line. I haven't had time to prepare for him. You know, a champion needs time to prepare for their challengers. And Nick yeah. beat him. You know, Vern put him over. And that built Nick up. But what happened was is that Ray Stevens was ent entering the AWA at that very same night. And he interfered in the match only in the respect that when Vern had the sleeper hold on Nick during the match, Stevens jumped up on the ring apron. Who He said he was there to scout the two guys because he had come to the AWA to get a title match. That's what Stevens yeah. promoted you know, on TV before this. So he was sitting at ringside to scout the champion and the challenger in this match. Well, during the match, sleeper hold, Vern has on Nick. Stevens jumps up on the ring apron to point out to referee Aldo Bogni, a uh, former wrestler at that point, that, well, he wasn't a former wrestler, but he was near the end of his career, that Nick had a chokehold on, on Nick. And Vern released the hold, went over, punched Stevens off the ring apron to the floor. Well, while he was doing this, Nick recovered enough to roll Vern up into the pinning position. And Bogney won, two, three. Vern lost the non-title. But what happened was is that Nick and Ray came out right after that on the next TV program, and they were talking Ray was saying he had nothing to do with it. You know, this was purely coincidental. But they got over so good as a tag team that Vern changed his plan. And the rest yeah. is history. Vern kept the yeah. title for another four years. By the yeah. time he got to giving it to Nick, when the Nick and Ray team had now disbanded, Vern put it on Nick, which was the original plan. And he was going to yeah. take care of behind-the-scenes stuff. So that's where his seven-year run came in, seven-and-a-half-year run. But he, his goal was at that point to have beaten Bruno's run. Yeah. And Vern believed then that he'd go with Nick, who was the flagship. And Nick, as a heel champion, oh, my God. Yeah. Powerhouse. He drew. Because five years. Five years. Five years. Five years. And Nick took the title to a level where he irritated fans and drew well because he was a wrestler. He didn't yeah. need to cheat. That's the way the fans looked at it. He didn't need to use illegal tactics. But when he did, that's what made fans angry. And so they wanted yeah. whoever it was to beat him. Yeah. And then the, the end of that story goes where in 1980, Vern had put together his, he was going to retire as an active wrestler. And whether fans agree with this or not, to me, this was a made-for-movie ending. Vern yeah. took the title back from Nick, held it for a year, made the comment during the course of that year that he was going to retire in May of 81. 
And winner, winner, whatever, before that time, he would retire. If he lost the title before that time, he would retire. But he wanted to retire as champion. And yeah. so they have that May 81 match against Nick. Nick was the number one challenger, having been, you know, the former champ. And Vern uh, put him over, Vern won in that retirement match. And the accolades of the 20,000 plus fans in the Civic Center that night, Vern's buddies all at ringside, you know, he had Leo Namalini, his former wrestling buddy, he had the crusher. He had, uh, at that point, Larry Hennig was a good guy. He was there. Kurt Hennig was there. Rudy Boswich, who was a senator from Minnesota, U.S. senator, and uh, Billy Bai and uh, Bud Grant, the former Minnesota Viking football manager. They were all yeah. buddies of her, and they were all ringside that night. This, The governor had declared the day, Governor Al Qui at the time, had declared it Vern Gagne Day in Minnesota. Oh, wow. So, Vern, this was a storybook ending. The yeah. aging champion retires because he was 55 at that point. The yeah. aging champion goes out with the belt. That's a movie, Brian. So yeah. any of these fans out there that say, oh, Vern had an ego and he couldn't lose the title and he was too old. Yeah, he wasn't the whirlwind he was 10 or 15, 20 years earlier. I admit that. But he drew the money and he was believable. Yeah. And Nick... Yeah. Worked, him and Nick worked so good together. The match was beautiful. Yeah. Nick wins. Vern retires. Yeah. I mean, that's a story. That is a Hollywood movie. You mm -hmm. followed his career throughout. You told this story of pro wrestling with the champion retiring at the end. Amen. Yeah. It was beautiful. Amen. It was. One more question, George, and that is this. Work, the big three, they worked together, even though they were uh, adversaries, per se. How did that behind-the-scenes kind of work? You know, we see pictures of them nowadays <laughs> at the NWA convention. We see Vince Sr. and Byrne with, uh, you know, Sam Mushnick or whoever the NWA, Bob Geigle, Geigle, excuse me. Uh, those guys at these conventions, even though they're supposed to be adversaries and competing against each other, and they also intermix talent with each other, which nowadays, you know, is a big no-no, but back then they did it, you know, kind of undercover, I guess you want to say. I mean, they bring in the NWA world champion at the Garden and face somebody or bring in Vern at the Garden and vice versa. How did that kind of, I don't know, I don't, I don't play out because, you know, on TV it's like, they never said it, but, you know, NWA and WWWF are adversaries, you know, or vice versa. You know, in the NWA, you don't, you know, how did that all kind of work and play out? Because they broke off because they didn't care for their system, but yet they were together. Can you kind of explain well, how that kind of worked? I think I think the best way to explain it, Brian, is during that territorial system that was working so well throughout the 50s, the 60s and the 70s. Let's give it the three decades. The the fans, again, we have to remember this was total kayfabe, okay? Yeah. And it's 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 hard sometimes when I try to tell younger fans that, you know, when I watched All-Star Wrestling on Saturday night, mm -hmm. I had 
absolutely. When they told me that this was the best wrestling in the world and we had the best wrestlers in the world and you no other territory has any of the best wrestlers, we believed it because that's all we saw. That's all right. we had, you know, privilege to see. The only outlets that maybe exposed us to another wrestler from another territory. When we'd go to the drugstore or the newsstand and I'd buy Wrestling Review magazine or Wrestling World magazine, and a little bit later the After magazines came in there, but Ring Wrestling was one of them. These magazines would show you highlights of different wrestlers. And we might hear about Bruno San Martino or Gorilla Monsoon or Eddie Graham or Fritz von Erich. But that was the only way we knew of them, but we never saw them. And so really what would happen is these promoters, yeah, they did. For the most part, they were cohesive with each other. Um, What had happened, though, is I think some fans will remember I've said this a few times. Each territory had what we call, what I call a mainstay. That's a Mm -hmm. guy, maybe two, three, maybe four wrestlers that are in the territory all the time. Yeah. And all of the storylines in the territory are always built around those guys. Whoever the next heel comes in, whoever the next baby face comes into the territory, it eventually turns out those four or five mainstays. So using the AWA, Vern Gagne, The Crusher, Mad Dog Vashon, Larry Hennig in the 60s. And then you had in the 70s, you had Nick, of course, the Crusher, of course. Then you had uh, Billy Robinson, Nick Bockwinkle. Those became our mainstays for the 70s. And so the way that all the territories worked is their three, four, five mainstays, they were the heroes to the fans or the anti-heroes, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And the promoters would continually bring in challengers, new wrestlers, when that wrestler was starting to get old, not not old in age, old in drawing power, it was yeah. time to move him on. And so, in those territory days, these guys they were they were gypsies. They were in a territory for six months to a year, maybe two years, and then yeah. they it was time to move on. They were getting old. Their their gimmick, their shtick, whatever it was, was getting old. So they'd go to another territory and it allowed them to either continue the character that they had left behind or create a new persona Mm -hmm. and become the star in that territory for a year or two years. But again, then they'd get move on. And that's the way the business worked. All these wrestlers like gypsies on the road and the promoters then would work, you know, Vern Gagne, Sam Butchnick, Don Owen, Roy Shire, Vince McMahon. Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy before Fritz von Erich in uh, Texas. Uh, oh, good Lord. Having a, another brain loss. Uh, his name will come to me. But Eddie Graham in Florida, you know, wherever it was, these guys would say, well, I'm going to send you so-and-so, and you send me so-and-so. And it, it was just nobody knew. You know, yeah. all of a sudden we've got we've got a guy, and I'm going to use Johnny Powers as an example because we talked about his passing briefly. He came yeah. here in January or at the end of February, right middle of February in '67. He was here until 
the end of September, and then made a couple of appearances back in, later on in December of 67. But he was basically here for about six months. Mm -hmm. What happened was, is he was kind of one of those guys where he was over, but he was getting old. He'd already faced the crusher. He had had title matches with Vern Gagne. He'd wrestled, you know, the other baby faces, uh, uh, Reggie Parks and Billy Red Cloud, whoever was here at the time, Doug Gilbert, you know, his time to move on. And so that's what he would do. And then we, we, we wouldn't notice, you know, a card here, card there, three, four cards go by. Fans forget. You know, yeah. They never thought about, gee, I haven't seen Johnny Powers for two months because they were too busy being introduced to the next big thing. And in that, in, in Johnny Powers' case, it was guys like Dr. X and Cowboy Bill Watts who came in in 67 and kind of became the next big fan's attention and what they, they built him up to be. So yeah. the business worked that way. And it was, it was camaraderie. It doesn't mean that there weren't promoters every once in a while that would say, well, you know, I think I'm going to test the waters and see if I can't promote in that guy's backyard in his yeah. territory. <laughs> if he did, usually the established promoter promotion would call in all their resources, you know, call in all their fellow wrestler buddies. They put on this super card with all these big names on it and try to run opposition then to this new enemy coming to town. And for a while, the enemy would try to put mega stars on their, on their cards. The winners were the fans. But again, it was always down to, and let's back up to what TV wrestling offered. The local promotion had the TV outlet. And that that invader promotion was struggling to do better because they didn't have the way to promote their guys. And before you know it, they might run the same night yeah. or one night apart. And fans in those days, they had their allegiance. So... They were going to go see all the guys that they recognized go to that card. It was on, you know, on the same night they got to choose. If it was a night after or a couple nights after, well, I only got enough money to go to one. Well, I'm going to go see Vern Gagne. I'm going to go see the Crusher, whatever the case was. And so the opposition would go away. But for yeah. the most part, the promoters got along. And Vern Gagne, it's always talked about his friendship with Eddie, Eddie Graham. And yeah. Vern sent a lot of his rookies, his trainees, to Eddie. He'd call up Eddie and he'd say, I got these, this guy, that guy. You know, I'd like to send him down. He's worked with my boys up here. I'd like to have him get some more experience. Send him down there. They'd get experience. Um, he had a good relationship, Vern did, with Sam Mutchnick. And he had a great relationship with Vince Sr. Vince was well-liked, Sr. Yeah. was. And you know, a lot of that changed when Junior started to see, and, you know, there were other promoters that kind of saw it, but they didn't know how to make it happen. Cable TV had come along in the, well, it's in the mid-70s, I think some areas of the country were getting cable TV. What mm -hmm. happened there was then fans were able to see their local show, and like here in Minnesota, we had all-star wrestling, but on Saturday afternoons, you could get the Superstation, TBS, out of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You'd get their cable show, and you saw these Atlanta guys. 
And some of the names you recognize, you'd maybe seen them or heard of them, but there were new faces. And it became harder for all these local promoters, established promoters in a territory to go out and tell their fans, you know, fans, so-and-so isn't going to be here. He got injured last night in the match. Well, they couldn't do that because the fans just saw him wrestling in Atlanta. Come yeah. on. So the kayfabe started to crap, the crap, crap. Yeah, crap, too. Crap. <laughs> and yeah. as the later 70s into the 80s happened, it became harder and harder for that illusion of realism to yeah. be expressed because no longer could they say, you know, when Pampero Furpo lost a loser leave town, or no, he was suspended in 1964. Suspended. He will not wrestle anywhere. He's suspended. Well, UWA fans thought, well, gee, you know, Furpo lost. He's suspended. Not going to be back. The poor guy doesn't have any income. Well, we didn't know that he'd been wrestling down in the South for the next three years. Of course he had an income. He just went to another territory. They couldn't pull that off, that type of thing off anymore. Once yeah. the, the cable yeah. started taking place. And there you have it. And yeah. the breakdown started when Vince Jr. started taking wrestlers, buying the TV time, yeah. uh, you know, paying some guys not to wrestle for the guy they'd been wrestling for. I mean, it was yeah. an ugly war behind the scenes. Yeah. And even then, most of the fans didn't understand how ugly it was behind the curtain. There was more right. action behind the curtain than there was in the ring. Yeah. Did that explain yeah. it for you? That did. Um, How do I, I appreciate keep talking? It. That's okay. That's great. No, I love Please. it. Uh, George, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. Um, a lot of insight today, folks. Uh, George is always such a wealth of knowledge, and I always I love having him on here because I always learn something new. So. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Shire, pro wrestling historian. Thank you. Legend. And uh, oh. thanks for coming on again, George. Really appreciate it. Folks, My he's God. got some books out there. Uh, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. Get out there and get that book. He's got three other books out with uh, the AWA record books from the 1960s, part 70 to 74, part one, and 75 to 79, part two. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Get on Amazon, get on whatever book site, get his books. He's a wealth of knowledge and everything in there is factual. It isn't made up. It isn't like he thought of it off the top of his head. Factual. And anybody that knows go, George I, will tell you that. I got to go get a check and write it out to you again for the, for the plug. <laughs> oh, right. man. Uh, Brian, thank please. you for having me on. I love your show and you always thank you. do a great job. Keep it up. And thanks thank for having you, me sir. on. Thank All you. right. I will. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Shire, please, folks, if you're listening, thank you. If you're watching, thank you. And if you haven't subscribed, please do so, and we will talk to you soon. Hey, this is Total Package, Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out. Hey, guys, before we get started, I just wanted to read this commercial because it's an agreement that we made with a really great podcast, and I want to tell you guys all about it. Pro Wrestling Interviews, it features guests who are hot indie stars as well as the greats of the ring. Each week, you can join the amazing Velvet as well as Dr. John as they host this jam-packed hour of interviews, pro wrestling news, and entertaining guests. It's an hour you don't want to miss. 
Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Every Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern, just go to ProWrestlingInterviews.com, and it'll take you to their Facebook page where you can get the custom podcast link for that week. Don't miss a second of Pro Wrestling Interviews. That Sunday nights, 9 Eastern, ProWrestlingInterviews.com. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In The Room. Every Tuesday night at 9, listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Kathy Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Kaku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off uh, buildings. And then uh, pregnant. I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into, like, snuff film territory there. In the room. 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Stags of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs here. You getting ready to get nasty? Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts, and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts will include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, former Impact performer Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hick, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. Archive-free content includes past interviews with huge names like Paul Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Ding, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOCNation. Bill After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, talking here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight. 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill After's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham, and he's uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet. And for just $9 a month, Aptor's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect is? Well, I'll is? tell you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally <laughs> found the true world champion. I finally found... What's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? Well, I think, uh, I don't know what to say, but I, I want to say one thing. Uh, Bruno was a hell of a champion. Yeah. Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time. This is Bill After, and once again, we're speaking here with Bruno San Martino. Bruno, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiants? Well, actually, it was uh, uh, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it a did loss. Did didn't have anything to do with Well, yes, but the whole thing is this, that the rules, as I always understood them, was that you, the title could only be lost by pin or, or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World War Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was... To sign up, it's very simple. 
Head to premium.vocnation.com or go to patreon.com slash vocnation. VOC Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week, talking dream matches, taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out. VOCNation.com. WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation. 